Well, what a great uh, privilege it is to study those ancient words given to us by the Spirit of God. It's uh, an incredible blessing indeed. Well, I invite you to open uh, your Bibles with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 19 through 22 as Paul continues to give a, a very fast, staccato, rapid-fire list of imperatives or commands or rules for us to live by. Primarily, the corporate worship of the church is in view, but uh, it probably spills over into our everyday life uh, as well. So I'll begin reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Starting in verse 19, a reading from this Holy Spirit-inspired book, these ancient words, uh, the message of God to us this morning. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And may the church hear the Word of God read to them this morning. So these five short little commands can be summarized, I think, generally in the idea that we honor the Spirit by honoring the Word. We honor the Spirit of God by honoring the Word of God. So we honor the spirit of prophecy is the idea that's given uh, to us in this passage. So again, when we begin to dive into these five uh, rules or commandments given to us by God through the, the Apostle Paul, the first one is interesting because he says, do not quench the spirit. Now certainly that can be on a daily practical level. It could certainly be on a corporate church level. And uh, people may differ on how they would uh, understand that. But the word to quench here, the way it's used in the New Testament is consistently the idea of quenching a fire. Like you put out a fire. If you pour, if you douse water on a fire and you quench it. And that's an interesting analogy in figure of speech because the Holy Spirit sometimes is symbolized by fire. We know on the day of Pentecost when He came, He gave them tongues of fire. But uh, this is symbolic language. The the Holy Spirit is, is not fire. He symbolizes fire. And to quench the Spirit here means something symbolically like uh, it's not pour water on the Spirit, but don't stifle the Spirit. Don't suppress the influences of the Spirit. Don't ignore it. Don't smother it. Don't quench the Spirit of God. Now obviously, this uh, teaches us something about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that sometimes His influences, His ministry can be quenched. Not always. Uh, sometimes, oftentimes, God works in an irresistible, effectual, sovereign way that cannot be quenched, cannot be resisted, because God works in a powerful, sovereign way. 
For example, some of his irresistible effectual ministries is number one, when he gave us the Bible. God so worked in the minds and the wills of the authors of Scripture that He effectually guided them to choose the very words that God wanted them to write. They may not have been aware of that invisible hand guiding, but He gave us an infallible, inerrant Word. And that's because God, the Spirit, at times can work in an irresistible, effectual, sovereign way that man cannot resist or overcome. The work of God's effectual calling and the Spirit's work of regeneration are also sovereign. They're also irresistible and effectual. So before an unbeliever can ever come to Christ, the Spirit of God has to come in and change out their heart. Because otherwise they're blind to their sin. They don't see their need for Christ, which is gigantic, but they're blind to it until the Spirit of God sovereignly, effectually changes their heart to make them sensitive to their sin and their need for a Savior. So the Spirit works sovereignly and effectually in that way. In uh, choosing and giving spiritual gifts to the saints, God works effectually and sovereignly. He chooses the gift. He gives it to whomever He chooses. And also in much of our sanctification, the sustaining of our faith, the, the, the guarantee of our perseverance are all ministries of the Spirit that are irresistible and effectual and sovereign. And yet, the Spirit at times in His influences and ministries can be resisted and quenched. Sadly, they can be stifled, they can be suppressed, they can be ignored. And God has His sovereign will in all of that as well. But uh, nevertheless, the exhortation carries weight. Do not quench the Spirit. Because the Spirit, in some of His ministries, can be quenched. We can stifle it. We can ignore it. We can refuse to submit to it. So what exactly is in view in this context that Paul would write to the Thessalonians and command them, do not quench the Spirit? Well, we could go back up into the preceding context and there Paul is exhorted uh, the saints to live in peace and patience and have the joy of the Lord and to have a thankful heart, to be consistent in prayer. And these are all the influences of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people. And sometimes we can quench that. So we're not joyful. Sometimes our faith is small and we don't embrace. We don't stand on the promises of God. We're standing off of the promises of God. And so we don't have the impact of their power in our lives. So it could refer to that and just the, the practical daily living of our life that sometimes we quench the Spirit in that regard. Or possibly another way to view this is what he's about to say in verse 20 through 22. That the congregation of the church can quench the Spirit when they despise prophetic utterances. So whatever the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, what Paul is exhorting us 
is don't resist it. Submit to it. Follow it. And most importantly, as it's revealed to us in Scripture, since apart from Scripture, sometimes it may be hard to discern the Spirit's presence or influence. So with that in mind, I think we can now move towards the second of these five commands where he says, do not despise prophetic utterances. Now first off, to, to understand this, we need to begin by asking the question, what is the, the gift of prophecy that he's referencing in verse 20? And we can begin our examination of that by understanding that this is one of the Spirit's gifts. So it's the, it's the Spirit who grants the gift of prophecy to whom He chooses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11 says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing them to each one individually just as He wills. So the Spirit chooses and wills who He gives these various gifts to. But when you define, okay, what does the gift of prophecy mean? And uh, there are different interpretations of this. Some people say that the gift of prophecy is basically today the, the gift of preaching. It's the fact that uh, basically prophecy is just another synonym, another way for saying that you preach or teach or exhort from the Word of God. That's the gift of prophecy today according to some. The problem with that view, one of the problems, is that the gift of prophecy is usually listed in a group of miraculous supernatural gifts given by the Spirit. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, he lists the spiritual gift of miracles, which is supernatural, and prophecy and distinguishing of spirits, which was probably supernatural. The gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues are supernatural. So prophecy is right in the middle, so we would discern and, and expect that it was a supernatural gift. So it's not just a gift of preaching. It requires a supernatural element to it. So the gift of prophecy as preaching is probably not the right uh, interpretation. You can also see in 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul says that if everybody in the church prophesies, an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his hearts are disclosed, so that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So the gift of prophecy seems to have a supernatural ability to reveal the secrets of people's hearts. So again, that seems to be a miraculous supernatural uh, gift. So the idea that the gift of prophecy is just merely preaching, I think has some problems. Another interpretation of the gift of prophecy today is the uh, charismatic interpretation, which says that the New Testament gift of prophecy is different than the Old Testament gift of prophecy. The New Testament gift of prophecy is explained as a direct revelation or more like an impression of the Spirit or from the Spirit, which can nevertheless be mixed with a certain amount of error. 
In other words, the New Testament gift of prophecy today is like a grade lower than Old Testament prophecy. It's less authoritative than Scripture, but you find it exercised in charismatic churches quite often. Wayne Gruden, Grudem, one of the proponents of this understanding of the New Testament gift of prophecy, says that it can be held by ordinary Christians who prophesy, but they do not speak with absolute divine authority, but they're simply reporting something that God laid on their hearts or brought to their minds. That's how he interprets the modern day gift of prophecy. But they also acknowledge that it can be mixed with error, which is interesting, which seems to defeat the whole definition because that's exactly what defines a false prophecy is truth mingled with error. That is a false prophecy. And yet many within the charismatic movement today say that this is a gift that is still current. And it, uh, the Spirit of God reveals things to us and we speak it, but it may not all be 100% true. So that seems to have problems also. Uh, you can go back to the Old Testament and clearly see where the, the, the prophet is defined. And I don't think the New Testament differs with this. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22, it says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, i.e. there's some error in it, that is a thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And then in verse 20 it says, but the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So if someone thinks they can be a prophet of God and speak forth an impression or revelation that can be mingled with error, they run ahead long against how the Bible and how God defines the true gift of prophecy. So I think there's, uh, there's problems there, uh, to say the least. One of the big uh, New Testament uh, proof texts for this kind of second-tier gift of prophecy that can have error in it is uh, the prophecy of Agabus in Acts 21. We don't have time to go there. If you're interested, I dealt with this back in our study in the book of Acts. If you're interested, you can go reference that. But they claim that part of that prophecy that Agabus gave had errors in it. And if you go back, though, and look at the fulfillment of it, it's amazingly accurate. And Agabus even said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. He is claiming direct inspiration and speaking the Word of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, that's the pattern for Old Testament prophets who would always begin their prophecies by saying, thus saith the Lord. And Agabus says basically, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Holy Spirit says. So if you start mingling in error there, then you have huge problems uh, with the gift of prophecy. Scripture, in my opinion, nowhere endorses a two-tiered view of prophecy. The real gift of prophecy 
is, uh, is something that uh, is supernatural and today's charismatic versions, I think, are irreconcilable with the biblical gift. So, to sum up, what is the gift of prophecy? I think it's a miraculous gift whereby God the Spirit communicates divine revelation to His prophets, His prophets in words which are absolutely true and authoritative. There's no error mixed with it. So that the gift of prophecy was a major source of edification and exhortation and consolation for the churches. So I think that is the gift that Paul has in mind when he says, do not despise prophetic utterances. By the way, uh, the duration of this gift brings us into the issue of whether or not you're a continuationist believing that this gift of prophecy is going to continue and function within the church until the second coming. That's a continuationist. The gift continues. Versus the cessationists who believe that the gift of prophecy was tied to the founding leaders of the church and it's no longer in function. That gift has been retired by God. It's no longer needed. And I think that is the biblical conclusion. Uh, The New Testament gift of prophecy has significant continuity with the Old Testament prophet. They're both authoritative. They're both inspired. And Paul says that the gift of New Testament prophets was foundational. It's joined with the apostles as the foundation of the church that that the church itself is being built upon. So if you look at Ephesians 2, for example, Paul says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So he's describing the believers in the church at Ephesus. You are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom, now notice, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The building is growing, not the foundation. The foundation is not growing. That foundation has has already been laid through the teachings of the apostles and prophets, Christ Himself being the cornerstone. But the building, the whole entire building on top of that foundation is growing. The foundation is not growing. If you really had the gift of prophecy today, then we'd have to be adding that to the Scriptures. okay? And the foundation would be growing because it would be authoritative for the church if it's truly the gift of prophecy. But here it's only the building that's growing on top of the finished and complete foundation that the Spirit of God has given to the church. So, the church in its infancy stage where Paul is ministering did not have a complete Bible like we do today. And so, to counteract the deficiencies, God gave them these special gifts, these gift of prophecies to impart blessings and truth to the church until the time that the canon of Scripture would be complete and the gift of prophecy would no longer be needed. It would be retired because we have all of Scripture. And I think that's, that's what Paul has in mind 
And uh, that's how we understand the gift of prophecy. So what is Paul saying then to the church? Do not despise prophetic utterances. Apparently, for some reason, there were some in the church that were despising the ministry and the word coming from these true prophets. Now, we don't know why. We don't have a lot of uh, information to make an educated guess, but probably because some false prophets were rising within the church saying heretical things. Maybe they, maybe they were speculating on the second coming of Christ. Remember in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is going to say that some are claiming the day of the Lord has already come and they're claiming that they got it from Paul. So there were no doubt false prophets operating in the church. And because of that, some of the people within the church were so disgusted with it, they were despising all prophetic utterances, even those coming from the genuine, true prophets of God. Maybe that's behind it. We can only guess. So what's the application for us today? Well, I don't think we have prophets of God today within the church. Again, I think that gift was retired after the New Testament canon was, was finished and completed. So I don't think we have the gift of prophets running around today. So how do we apply do not despise prophetic utterances since we don't have prophets who are going to be standing up and prophesying in the church today? So what application? Well, I think the application is, is quite logical. We do not despise the ministry of Scripture. This is, this is where the prophecies and the doctrines of the apostles are written down for us. So we can make the application today, do not despise the Word of God. In other words, treasure it. Don't despise it. Honor it. Value it. Don't ignore it. Don't suppress it. Don't neglect it. Honor the Scriptures. And I think that's the application that is most appropriate uh, for us in the church today. We honor the Spirit by honoring His Word. The prophetic utterances come from the Spirit. And so that we honor the Spirit when we honor the Word that comes from the Spirit. The reason why that's such an important idea, do not despise prophetic utterances, and the opposite, of course, is therefore value it, honor it, is because one of Satan's chief strategies in the church is to make us despise it. It's to make us doubt it or deny it. I mean, that's the very method that Satan used with Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? First, he began to show to sow doubts in her mind about, you know, has God surely said has he truly said this or not and then he just outright denied it surely you will not die satan hates god's word he hates god he hates us and he wants to use a a crowbar to separate us from the word of god that's always been his mode of operation christ in his parable of the of the soils 
Remember the guy who came out and the sower who sowed seed on the roadside soil? What happened to that seed? Couldn't penetrate. What happened? The birds came down, flew down and gobbled it up and took it away. And those birds were symbols of Satan. Demonic activity to steal the Word of God from us. Take it out of our hearts. So distract our minds that whatever Scripture we have in there doesn't take root. That's what Satan wants to do all the time. Wherever the apostles of truth went and preached, Satan had his false apostles preaching as well. They are deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, 2 Corinthians 11, so that wherever the heavenly dove goes, those demonic vultures follow them to pick apart and destroy whatever the Spirit of God has has done. Satan wants us to despise the Word. How do we despise the Word? Well, we, we neglect it. We treat it like normal, average, like any other book. We don't reverence it. We don't love it. We don't learn it. We don't live it. We despise it. And that's a challenge where Paul is saying, do not despise the prophecies that come from the Spirit of God. We need to receive those prophecies, the Scriptures. We need to believe them. We need to honor them for what they are, the Holy Scriptures. We need to recognize they're inspired by God and they're profitable. We need to fill our minds with them because it has the power to save us, transform us, and to grow us. So do not despise prophetic utterances. In light of that, he goes on to say in verse 21, but examine everything carefully. So within the church, uh, back then, the gift of prophecy was one that was uh, being exercised. And because of the presence of false prophets, Paul is duty-bound to tell them, okay, don't despise prophetic utterances, but you better test them. You better examine them. Because of the presence of false prophecies within the church. So you need to examine everything very carefully. So don't just listen to a prophet and be gullible and just accept it as truth. No. There are tests that need to be performed on their ministry to make sure that it's in line with the Word of God. Don't just trust them. Test them. Now obviously this brings us to a great example of a church that did that. And that's the Bereans. We're all familiar with the Bereans in Acts 17, verse 11. It says they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Okay, so already we know that the Thessalonians were not as diligent in testing the prophecies. Therefore, Paul is exhorting them on that area. The Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the Word with great eagerness, but now notice what they did. And this is the Word coming from the Apostle Paul. Okay, This is a man of God. This is an Apostle. He's teaching. Normally you just say, well, God, it's got to be true. But no. 
They examined the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Okay, Paul, you say this. Now we go over to the Word of God and we're going to test and see if what you're telling us is really true. See, they were more noble-minded because they tested what they were being taught. And so should you. So basically what Paul is exhorting them to do, and they need this exhortation because they're not as noble-minded as the Bereans, is examine everything carefully. Well, how do you do that? How do you examine what you're being taught from Scripture to make sure that it's legitimate? Well, one of the things we can look at, of course, is we can go back to Deuteronomy 13. And uh, Moses is giving them a test for determining a true prophet. And notice what he says. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, okay, he's either going to give you a prophecy, a sign, or he's going to do a miracle, a wonder, okay? He gives you a sign or a wonder, a miracle of some kind. And the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. And Moses says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Okay, so what's the test? Here's a prophet who came. And he said, okay, let's, let's go serve these other gods. Let's do this. And to show you that I'm a true prophet of God, here's a miracle. Here's a sign. Here's a wonder. And that sign, that wonder actually comes true. I mean, it's like a miracle. It comes true. And you might think, wow, if it's a miracle, this must be a trustworthy man of God. But notice what he is coupled with that miracle. His teaching which says, let us go after other gods. Wait a second. That violates previously given truth. Okay? It violates the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a graven image. So what he, even though he did a miracle, what he taught contradicted previously revealed truth. So therefore, this is a false prophet. Even if he did a miracle, even if he did a sign, it's a false prophet because his message contradicted previously revealed truth from God. So when you test what you're being taught, one of the tests is, does it contradict anything else in Scripture? Is it a view that contradicts something clearly taught in the Word of God? That's one of the tests that they were to examine these prophetic utterances by. In general, that can be broadened out to all of the, the, the primary doctrines of the faith. The fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth in the flesh, that He has two natures. Fully God and fully man. In one person. If they deny that, I don't care if they do miracles. They are a false prophet. If they start teaching a gospel of salvation by faith plus works, they say for you to be saved, you got to do works. 
That is a false gospel and it's a false prophet. You also look at the character of the prophet. Is he a, is he a wolf in sheep's clothing? Is his lifestyle in the, in the direction of someone who is walking with the Lord? That's, who's a Christian? Because Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. So you look at their character. You look at the fruit of their ministry. Is it edifying the church? Is it building up the church? Is it promoting love? Is it promoting the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it creating division and anger? Is it strengthening and encouraging? Or is it tearing down? Is it convicting us of sin? Which is good. We need that as well. Or is He just telling everybody how wonderful they are all the time? It's a false prophet. Don't trust them. So he, exa- he exhorts them to examine everything carefully that they're being taught. And once you've examined it, what has been approved by God, what is consistent with Scripture, is good for edification, hold fast to that. Cling to what is good. Embrace it. The idea of holding fast is the idea of, of snatching it, pulling it in close, embracing it. Don't let it escape from you. Don't let it get away from you. It's like that, that eagle that's going after a fish and he swoops down on top of the water and with those big, huge, powerful talons, he just snatches that fish and jerks him up out of the water. And man, he's clinging to that fish. And that's the idea that when you, when you come across truth in the Word of God, you cling to it. You hold fast to it. Because that fish is going to nourish the body of that eagle. And that truth is going to nourish the soul of the believer. So you cling to it. You hold it fast. Don't let it go. Don't let Satan come and his birds and gobble it up and take it from you. You meditate on it. You dwell on it. You hold it fast in your heart. Let your mind store it up. Don't be like a a leaky bucket. And the older we get, the leakier the old brain gets, but you just have to review more. You try your best to keep that truth in your heart. You treasure it as truth given from a holy God designed to bless our soul. So you cling fast to it. You hold fast to it. And then the last exhortation is abstain from every form of evil. So if there's any evil in what was taught, you abstain from it. The word abstain is very similar to the word hold fast in Greek and Paul intends this as a a play on words which we don't necessarily get in in the English translation. But the word to abstain has the idea of hold off. So the idea is hold fast or literally hold down what is good but hold off what is evil. And that's kind of the play on words that he's using. So hold down truth. Keep it near you. Don't let it go. Don't let it run off. Don't let it escape. Hold it down. But hold off evil. Get it away from you. Put it off. Cast it from you. Put distance between you and yourself. It's like carrying out that stinky bag of garbage out of your house. What do you do with it? 
No, you, you hold your nose and you hold that, you carry that stuff off till you can get out to the trash can. You get rid of it. I mean, you don't want it to, to contaminate your nostrils anymore. You get away from it. And that's the emphasis that he has here. Hold fast, embrace what is good. But the bad stuff, you get rid of it. You cast it out from you. And notice he says, every form of evil, which could be both bad, unbiblical, doctrinal teaching, or practical, ungodly living. Just sinful lifestyle, sinful living. In other words, say no to sin in any form that it takes. Fleshly lusts that wage war against our souls. Say no to it. Abstain from it, Peter says. So don't let it get near you. Run from it. If your eye causes you to stumble, what did Jesus say? Pluck it out. Throw it over the throw it out of the stadium. Get rid of it. Figuratively speaking. But it speaks of distance and it speaks of the energy and just the, the commitment that we need to, to have in dealing with sin as we wrestle with it. So you cast it from you. So you have friends that are tempting you to sin. They're not believers. And they're corrupting you. And they're tempting you to do things that you know are not right. What do you do with them? Abstain. Get better friends. Don't hang around them. You've got to make a cleavage. You've got to abstain. You've got to make a separation between those who may negatively harm or injure your soul. So whatever form of evil it is, abstain from it. So to summarize the, the section, I think if you kind of turn it from the negative to the positive, there's a lot of negative in here. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything. Abstain from every form of evil. I think to put a positive focus on it, which is ultimately what Paul wants, I think you can summarize it in the words, the idea that to honor the Spirit, we honor, the, honor His Word. I think that summarizes kind of what he's emphasizing. Think about this for a second. <clears throat> you, own, you own nothing, own nothing that can bless you more than the Word of God. Whatever you own, and I, even if you're a billionaire, you own nothing that can bless you more than the Word of God. So here are some blessings that come to us through Scripture. And we honor the Spirit as we honor His Word because through His Word, the Spirit blesses His people. So some of the things, some of the blessings that come from the Scriptures given to us by the Spirit are number one, the the Scriptures reveal to us God. It shows us the glory of God. The redemption of Jesus Christ. You can't get that from general revelation. Only Scripture can reveal to you 
the character, the glory of God, whether it's the Trinity or the attributes of God or the fear of God or just God's work in church history, which are are classes coming up next time, Scripture reveals the character, the glory of God. And we need to see and know and understand God for who He really is. The Word of God alone gives us that vision. Scripture is also pure and holy true. You don't have any other book like it. The Bible says in Psalm 12.6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. The Scripture is purer than the purest silver and gold you could ever imagine. There is no error in it. Regardless of what the atheists and the uh, deniers may say. Scripture has the power to transform you and me. Paul says in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your minds. Where are you going to renew your mind in? The Word of God. That's clearly implied. Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good deed. The Word of God can transform our lives as we spend time in it. The Scriptures can also grow our faith when it's weak and stumbling. Romans 10.17 So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Scripture is vital for our sanctification. You can't grow more holy and be more Christ-like apart from the Scriptures. That's why Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, Sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. That's how we get sanctified. The Scripture also empowers our spiritual victory over our enemy, primarily over Satan. Remember Ephesians 6, verse 17. The armor of God, something that every believer needs to put on every day. Most of those parts are defensive in nature, but there's one that's offensive, and you know what that is. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit in your hands as you engage in battle against the demonic forces that may want to tempt you and ruin you. The sword of the Spirit is what we fight with. The Word of God, the promises of God. All of that is a sword He puts into our hand. And Christ is our example of that. When Satan tempted Him in the garden, I'm sorry, in the wilderness, in Matthew 4, the three times, three temptations, how did Christ defeat the temptations every time? By quoting Scripture to Satan. And what book did He quote from? Deuteronomy. Three times. When was the last time you read the book of Deuteronomy? Christ defeated all of the temptations from the devil with one book of Scripture, the book of Deuteronomy. See, it's all profitable, edifying, good for training in righteousness. And let me speak to all the young men and women here this morning. There's one in a thousand of you who have the wisdom to know the importance of Scripture in your life. 
And I hope you're one of them or will become one of them. The Word of God for young people is a source of strength that will protect you and bless you far more than anything else in this world can. John told young men in his first letter, he said, I've written to you young men because you're strong. Now that's interesting. He calls these young men strong. In what way are they strong? Can they do a hundred push-ups? Fifteen pull-ups? Is that the strength? Well, there's a better strength even than that. He says, I'm writing to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Young men, young women, you can defeat the devil himself. The temptations, the snares, the traps if you commit yourself to the Word of God. The Word of God abides in them. John says. And because of that, you are strong and powerful. And you can defeat the devil himself if you're walking in the Word of God. Oh, may God give you young people that heart. David said in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? How are you going to avoid all the temptations of the world around you to think you're a different gender or to, it's okay to live, to have sexual relations before I'm married? How are you going to avoid all of that, the, the power of those temptations? How can you keep your way pure? Well, David gives the answer by keeping it according to your word. It's a powerful source of strength in the hearts of young people. And may God bless our young people with a commitment to the Word. Scripture can also sustain us in trials. Trials can beat us down and wear us out and discourage us. But Psalm 119 verse 50 says, This is my comfort and my affliction that Your Word has revived me. I mean, I was so discouraged. I was so stressed out. I was full of anxiety and fear and worry. But I read in the Word of God and the Spirit used the Word to revive me, to fill up my joy, to restore me. The power of the Word of God in the life of God's people. The Scriptures can cleanse our soul through its convicting ministry. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. How many times have you and I been reading the Bible and the Spirit of God uses something in the text that just convicts me of sin in my heart and in my life. It happens a lot. And one of the ministries, one of the blessings of the Spirit of God is to help us to feel the pain of conviction because that is a means, a necessary step to healing. You've got to feel the pain. I remember reading a, a while back um, 
about Tony Dungy. Anybody know who he is? He was the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts when they won the Super Bowl in the year 2006. Well, the youngest son of Tony Dungy was born with a congenital disease that prevented him from feeling pain. He couldn't feel pain. And as a little boy, he'd be in the kitchen. His mom would pull out of the oven a hot pan of cookies. And he could go over and touch that hot pan and burn in serious pain, but he would feel nothing. He could take a hot cookie and put it in his mouth and it would burn his tongue. He would feel nothing. Can you imagine how dangerous that condition would be? Because pain is a good teacher. Pain teaches us the consequences of sin. And whenever the Spirit in His glorious ministry of conviction comes in and strikes me down and I feel the pain of conviction because of my sin, that is a blessing that He gives to His church. It is a blessing because without feeling pain and conviction, we don't repent and we don't be healed from it and grow through it. And one of the great ministries of the Spirit of God is He cleanses our soul through the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. We don't like to be convicted, but my goodness, it's a necessary ministry. It's a blessing. The Scriptures also water our fruitfulness. Without the Scriptures, we're not fruitful in our life. Psalm 1. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. But, his delight is what? In the law of the Lord. He delights in Scripture. And in His law, He meditates day and night. And He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. Its fruit does not wither. And whatever He does, He prospers. See, if you plant your life in the Word of God, your soul will be watered by Scripture, the water of Scripture, which will enable your life to bear more fruit for the glory of God. If you uproot yourself and go plant yourself out in a desert, there will be no fruit. We need to be planted in the water of the Word to bear fruit. The Word of God also illumines our path. We know this one. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Sometimes you don't know what God's doing with you, which way He wants to take you. But the Word of God can give you guidance to understand God's will and help you make godly choices. The Scriptures bless those who obey. He doesn't bless those who hear. It's those who hear and do the Word of God. They're the ones that are blessed. So John 13, Jesus said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The hearer of the Word only is not blessed. And then finally, Scripture is the most valuable thing you own. As we've already read, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. If you have thousands of gold and silver, what is gold now? Per ounce. It's a lot. 
But if you have thousands of them, you're, you're a wealthy person. I don't care how much money we have, the Scriptures are better to us than all the wealth, all the money you can imagine. Psalm 19.10, which we read earlier, they are more desirable than gold, the law of God. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So all of this, I think this is basically to summarize what Paul is trying to communicate to the church. They have not done a good job of examining and testing the prophecies given within their church. So he's giving them uh, strong guidance and exhortation as to how they are to uh, respond. Don't despise. Yeah, you can despise the false prophets, but not the good prophets. Test everything so you know what's true and what's false. Then cling to that which is good. Abstain and cast off that which is evil. And that's how you honor the Spirit and not quench the Spirit. You honor the Spirit as you honor His Word. There's a quote by J.C. Ryle that I think is fitting just to emphasize again the importance and the value and the blessing of Scripture. He says, by reading the Bible, we may learn what to believe, what to do, or what to be, and what to do. How to live with comfort and how to die in peace. Happy is that man who possesses a Bible. Happier still is the one who reads it And happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but obeys it and makes it the rule of his faith and practice. And I think in essence, that's what Paul is trying to say to the church at Thessalonica. Don't quench the Spirit. Honor the Spirit. You honor the Spirit by honoring the Word of God. Don't despise prophetic utterances. And in essence, he's exhorting them to love to learn the Word, to love the Word, and to live the Word. And in doing that, they will prosper and bear fruit for the glory of God. The wise and the blessed among us honor the Spirit of God by honoring the Word of God. And may the Spirit give us all a heart that hungers for God's Word that we might be transformed by it to the glory of Christ. So may God bless this to our hearts. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank You again for the opportunity to study the Word of God. We thank You for giving us in the early church the apostles and prophets who were the foundation of the church, who gave us that complete canon of Scripture which the church is now being built upon as we study it, as we learn it, as we love it, and as we live it. And so, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would move efficaciously within our hearts to help us learn it and love it and live it. To help us to treasure it. To help us to honor the Word of God For in doing so, we honor the Spirit of God as well. So Lord, You know our struggles, but You are our strength. So help us and bless us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.